Hi everybody, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Caleb. And this is Andrew. And welcome to episode 31. This is our sixth installment on the French and Indian War. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the fall of Fort Niagara. Now let me refresh your memory a little bit uh, from these past five episodes prior to this. Some of you might be forgetting because we're a couple months in from when we started, but the French have basically been dominating this war for the first several years. And even though they're doing quite poorly over in Europe, getting supplies and reinforcements over to the French, they managed to continue to win a lot of these battles. But these battles just aren't decisive, and the English and the Amer North American troops are not really retreating. They just raise another army and march up again. Last episode, we had the fall of Fort Duquesne and Fort Frontenac. These are the first big battles that the French have lost throughout this whole war. But we're going to see that this is going to have the snowball effect and things are going to start going downhill very quickly for the French. We also mentioned last time that a general named James Abercrombie was defeated at Ticonderoga in 1758. He was quickly recalled and replaced by a guy named Jeffrey Amherst. He has some pretty good success, and he is able to sail up to Lewisburg in Nova Scotia. And now they're thinking, okay, maybe we can start planning an invasion in Quebec. If you recall, the British Secretary of State is a guy named William Pitt, and he's ordering General Amherst to try and start raising an army to push into Canada by going up through Lake Champlain and attacking Ticonderoga again because, hey, the third or fourth time doing it is the charm, right? So Amherst's goal is now to come back and try and attack Lake Champlain. Meanwhile, his second-in-command, named James Wolfe, is going to attack the city of Quebec by way of the St. Lawrence River coming in from the north. He also sends instructions to the governors of the 13 colonies, and if you guys could raise another 20,000 militia for this campaign... That would be great. Again, we're looking at massive numbers. The time before, we had looked at 16,000 to Ticonderoga and 2,000 for Braddock, so the numbers just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the British colonies can do it because they have so many people, and they're sending thousands from all the different colonies. Even Pennsylvania sends some. Yeah, they had to get a little uh, creative in getting them to conscript and raise militia, though, didn't they, Andrew? Yes, because the dominated Quaker assembly said, um, no... We are pacifists, and so far pacifism is what's gotten us taken care of on the Pennsylvania frontier because we've negotiated treaties. But the general then threatened to them, hey, I don't think it's really your pacifism that's been keeping you safe. I think it's all of my forces that I've been stationing on the frontier border right outside of your farms. So if you aren't going to help raise men, then I'm going to pull all of my forces and put them somewhere else. And they begrudgingly decided to raise militia. Meanwhile, General Amherst learns through a letter from Sir William Johnson that the Iroquois League has decided to make peace because of the Treaty of Easton, and they are prepared to fully support the British efforts to drive the French out of the frontier forts. And he recommends, hey, the Iroquois want something to do. Why don't we attack Fort Niagara? So General Jeffrey Amherst decides to put a guy named Brigadier General John Prideau in charge of a campaign against Fort Niagara. It's kind of been used on and off again. Originally, there was a fort built there by Denonville all the way back in the 1680s. Since then, it's been a new fort that's been raised up in the early 1700s called Fort Niagara, and it's on the very tip of western New York where the Niagara River exits into Lake Ontario. And this fort throughout the French and Indian War has been consistently being improved every year. It's on a very strategic point. It's almost on a peninsula type thing that jars out of the northernmost 
the northwestern corner of New York State, and it's built all into rock. This isn't like a lot of these Adirondacks forts that are just built out of pine and, and swamps and things like this. This is a cliff, solid rock fort. Now, on top of Niagara being a huge stone castle, basically, as opposed to a wooden fort, it has 900-foot-tall battlements built into the cliff, three bastions. The troops, though, aren't that spectacular. There's actually only about 500 French and regular-slash-militias, and then a few more Native Americans thrown in there, there to help. And they are under the command of Captain Pierre Pouchot. Meanwhile, back in the heart of New York, Sir William Johnson and... Brigadier General John Prideau are mustering the men. They actually have about 3,000 regular militia, and Sir William Johnson's been working hard, and he has nearly 1,000 Iroquois warriors getting ready to join these 3,000 regulars. Now, the trip to Niagara is not going to be an easy one. All the forts have been destroyed pretty much by the French over the years, including Fort Bull and Fort Oswego. And even though the British burned Fort Frontenac, they're not leaving anybody there. They just did a quick run and destroy and fall back. And this is going to make things kind of scary for any officer who is going to have nearly 4,000 people under his direct command because the distance that they are going to have to go by marching and by boat is between three and 400 miles by the time they head north and then turn on Lake Ontario to head towards Niagara Falls. So if there's no forts in between, they really have to worry about running out of food, or if they get there and fail, they're not going to have enough resources to return. And you may be thinking to yourselves, well, why don't they just go overland the whole way? Because now that most of the Iroquois are in favor of them, they could just walk through the Six Nations, one after the other, all the way to Buffalo and Niagara, right? You've got to remember, there's no roads at this point, so there's no way to transport large amounts of supplies. If you look at a topographical map of New York, you have the Adirondack Mountains to the north, and then down below you have the Catskills, and then further west you have the Alleghenies. And if you look, there's this one valley, the Mohawk Valley, and that's the only way that you're going to be able to get troops through because you've got the Mohawk River that you can sail all the way up to the Oneida Carry, which is where Fort Bull used to be. And then that short few mile strip, you can get on a creek that's going to take you down Lake Oneida, and it's going to get you to the Oswego River. And on top of that, Andrew, you have to remember, this is all about secrecy. The general has made it very clear uh, to not let any of the lower commissioned officers and definitely not any of the Indians know about this, but if they're marching from Iroquois village to village all the way across New York State, word is going to get to the French very quickly at Niagara. So, when they get to the Oneida Carry, General Prito is very pleased to see that William Johnson has arrived with close to a thousand Iroquois warriors. They decide to guard their backs, and they build a new fort on the Oneida Carry, and they call it Fort Stanwix. Remember Fort Stanwix because it's going to be very important, not in this war, but when we get to the American Revolution, it's going to be a key fort. Then they finally make it to the Oswego River, and they build a new fort there as well, and decide to man both of these forts with a pretty, I wouldn't say huge number of men, but a good contingent of men to make sure that the French don't come down and try and stab them in the back. Guess what the French were trying to do at this point? Uh, probably get on boats, land behind them, and stab them in the back. They were more thinking just to reestablish a fort at Oswego. They really have no idea what the British are up to, but they're thinking, hey, it would be really good if we went down to Oswego, because then if the British ever tried to get there, we could stop them. And they heard some rumors that there were a few English there, but that they were thinking only a couple hundred. So they thought they'd land there with a force of 500, 
push away any resistance there, and then they have these choke points again. So the British ask some Iroquois scouts to head up into Canada and find out what's going on. And when they get to the mouth of the St. Lawrence River, they look out and they see that the French are building a fleet of small ships to try and sail onto Lake Ontario to capture and maybe garrison Oswego. They unfortunately weren't super good scouts because they're captured. And the Marquis, that's the governor of Canada, gets a hold of them and he thinks that, okay, I could kill them or... You know, the Iroquois have kind of been going back and forth. Let me explain to them that we really would like the Iroquois to stay neutral or, at very best, come back over to our side. And so he releases them and asks them to go back home to the council and please ask them to reconsider. I'm sure they were very happy to go home, but nothing's changing their mind at this point. Meanwhile, back in Ohio country, at the end of February... A captain named Lenirie informed Vaudreuil, that's the governor of Canada, that the British have rebuilt the fort at Duquesne, and they've called it Fort Pitt. And get this, Fort Pitt is only defended by like 300 men. And the next British post out at Loyal Hannon only has about 500 men. So they're thinking to themselves, well, the British have just taken the forks of the Ohio, but I think we can take it back. They really don't have too many people. And so we're thinking to ourselves, okay, we've got to deal with... Fort Duquesne again? How many freaking times are they going to try and retake this place? So they begin devising plans to launch an invasion into the Ohio country as Niagara as the base. So at the same time, you have armies massing on both sides to attack each other from two opposite directions. And we're going to see that the troops are leaving Niagara to head to Fort Pitt the exact same time that the British are coming down to attack Fort Niagara. The commander in charge at Niagara is a man, as Caleb mentioned before, named Pouchot, and he sends about 700 men to get to Fort Duquesne to try and take it as soon as possible. And I'll give you some numbers for what's going on up in Canada. They're going to send 1,200 men to come down and try and attack at Fort Oswego. So a lot of moving pieces are going on at once. Now we've talked about the French forces and the British forces. Let's talk a bit about the Haudenosaunee forces that are happening on this expedition. Like we said, William Johnson has gotten a thousand Iroquois warriors, but a lot of these are influential people throughout the Six Nations. One in particular, particular uh, Seneca chief named Old Smoke and he fought with the English. Now like we said the majority of the Seneca are fighting with the French but yet here we have a Seneca chief that's fighting with Sir William Johnson. This uh, gentleman Old Smoke you want to take a shot at his name Andrew? Let's say Sayan Queragata. Sounds right to me. Like we said everybody called him Old Smoke. Andrew and I have been saying this throughout the past six episodes it seems like but we say hey remember this guy's name because he's going to be important. It really goes to show you how the French and Indian War is really shaping a lot of the leadership that's going to be coming 20 years from now. This guy is a, a Seneca chief, but 20 years people are going to be referring to him as the king of the Seneca. He was from modern-day Geneva, New York. So it really goes to show you how the Seneca are really quite split. He's only maybe 30 miles from some of these other western Seneca villages, and he's from an eastern one, and he's fighting directly with Sir William Johnson. Now, Caleb, you had mentioned that General Prido is really concerned about leaks getting out of what the whole army is up to. But fortunately for him, he didn't have to worry because the Iroquois want this expedition to go well, and they are feeding false information to the French. So they're sending people to Niagara on purpose, and the French people there are asking, have you seen any British? No, they're all held up in Albany. We haven't seen anybody 
anywhere and they buy it okay well they say that there's no english sounds good while this is happening the british have already made it to oswego they leave about 2,000 men under the command of lieutenant colonel frederick hallamond there to secure the rear so as the british are getting ready to embark from fort oswego they see that some french have shown up under the command of a guy named lacon hallamond's forces are totally surprised at the french showing up and many of them are cutting timbers to build this new fort, and they totally flee and run away. The problem is some of LaCorne's Canadians actually get scared, even though they've got a lot of the English on the run, and they actually turn. The Canadians run back to their boats. Meanwhile, LaCorne is running down trying to rally them and saying, hey, we got a perfect opportunity to surprise these English. Get back up there. Why are you turning and running? We should be making them run. So by the time he gets all his men back together, though, the British have kind of mustered together and they're able to hold them off. And they actually have cannons set up ready in position. So the Canadians decide to get in their boats and they're rowing back up. They end up losing like... 30 people killed and wounded, including LaCorne himself, who was wounded in the thigh. Oh, poor LaCorne. He didn't last this story very long. About a paragraph and a half, to be exact. While this little skirmish is happening, Prido is already on his way on boats, sailing down the coast of Lake Ontario to Niagara. Now, as Prido is traveling down Lake Ontario, they're going to get caught, Caleb, because you know why? Why? Because the French have a Corvette, which is not a car, I found out, but it's actually a ship. And it's patrolling the waters on Lake Ontario to make sure that nobody travels down it. And they spot him immediately, right? They spot him immediately, and the, the entire expedition is lost. Not one person survives. But that's not what happened, because the ship didn't see them at all. I wonder why they didn't see them. Were they drinking? Were, was it fo- Maybe it was foggy night. Maybe we can give them the benefit of a doubt. Maybe they, they snuck through in thick fog, and his entire uh, caravan of bateau made it through. Now... One thing that I find hugely ironic is, do you know what the name of this ship was, Caleb? Oh, yeah, this is kind of funny. The name of the French Corvette was the Iroquois. Or in French, Iroquois. So there is literally a thousand Iroquois warriors coming to kill the French, and they sneak by a boat that's named after them. On July 6, Prido's men land close to Fort Niagara, but they're kind of hidden behind the woods. The Iroquois are still lying to the French, and they have no idea that they're coming. It's not until in the afternoon that Pouchot, the commander at Fort Niagara, has one of his men come running back in, saying that he was out pigeon hunting with a group of buddies, and some Iroquois Indians ambushed them, and he was the only one that made it back. And Pouchot's thinking, okay, there's a troublesome band of Iroquois that are outside, probably just a few dozen of them. Let's go out and see what's going on and see if we can chase them away. So he sends out about a dozen people, and they have no idea that there's thousands of people hiding in the woods. And as soon as they run out, they run into some more Indians, but they realize quickly that this is not a small band of them, and they're forced to quickly retreat back in the fort. He soon realizes that it's an entire British army, and they're getting ready to lay siege. So the following day, Pouchot sends a message to the Ohio country, because the French still have some forts in this area, even though they've lost Fort Duquesne. And they said, guys, turn around. I know that I sent you down there to attack Fort Pitt, 
But if you don't get here quick, we're going to be in serious trouble and having Fort Pitt's going to be completely useless. And remember, the French only roughly have about 500 regulars and then a few hundred Native Americans. So you're looking at about 4,000 people to about 700 people. The following day, on July 8th, the British begin their preparations for attack. And they send a summons to Pouchot asking him to surrender. Of course, we've learned that proper etiquette is you refuse the surrender. So the British begin the wonderful thing of siege warfare, digging trenches. Caleb's already mentioned that this fort is a massive construction, and if you ever have a chance to visit Old Fort Niagara, I highly recommend it. I really was surprised at how it really is like a castle and not like a stockaded. Okay, I meant to ask you this because I wasn't sure, but you know how there's like the main stone building castle itself within the fort? Is that the same stone building that was around in the French and Indian War? Yes. Okay, wow. But at the time, like Caleb said, they've been building this up, and so there's a stone wall around that. And then there's another stone blockhouse. And then you have forward bastions that come out kind of like in a couple triangles. And then you have another works in front of that that's mainly just a mound of dirt. So you're really going to have a bad time trying to take this place. You're going to need some serious artillery to try and get in. I'd also like to mention that higher up on the river, about two kilometers or roughly a little more than a mile, above, they call it the cataract, but it was the falls, there was another fort called Little Niagara, and that was, you know, pretty minuscule and tiny. It was bit made out of wood. And Pershaw realizes uh, probably best to just pull the 40 to 50 troops that he has stationed there and get them into the main encampment because he realizes that if we lose this main fort, then we're done for. So best give up that smaller fort just north of us and uh, and see if we can hold out till reinforcements come. So the man there that was garrisoning it named Jean Cahiers decides, all right, let's burn it, let's head down, we've got some Seneca allies with us, let's bring them to Niagara and fortify. A Seneca chief who has come in with this group of Seneca from Little Niagara named Kayade, and they ask him to go out and talk to the British Iroquois. He's able to go out under a white flag, and he's able to convince two of the British Iroquois to come back with him to Fort Niagara to talk to the French commander, Pouchot. Now, Caleb, if you've got 900 to 1,000 Iroquois outside your place besieging you and you want them to leave and not help the British anymore or possibly even betray them, what would you say to them to convince them to join you? I would probably uh, beg or offer them lots of gifts, maybe appeal to the humanity to leave or something like that. Well, here's what Pichot does. As soon as he gets them into his audience, he begins chiding them and the whole Six Nations, and says that they're good for nothing for deserting the French, and he begins to say that the French are all-powerful and have great prowess, and we can't imagine why you would betray us. Probably not the nicest thing to say to them. You know, get them all riled up right before the battle? Yeah, probably not. Meanwhile, the Mississauga and Potawatomi Indian allies who are also with the French try to convince them to pledge loyalty and encourage the Iroquois to stand with them and... You know, let's not attack each other. Let's not be fighting against our own brother's hands. This goes back and forth until like 9 o'clock at night, this discussion. They decide to finally let the Iroquois out of the fort, and they make vague promises saying, all right, we'll let you know tomorrow what the decision is. A day or so later, Kayende and another guy named Chattacuan come out and visit the English camp. They're able to kind of 
spy a little bit while they're out there and see what Johnson is up to. But they realize that these Indians are not going to betray the English. They come back and say, William Johnson has promised them all the booty for the fort. And there's pretty much nothing we can match that with aside from all the booty from the fort. Meanwhile, the British have been working during this parley that's going back and forth, and they begin digging the trenches further and further, and they're getting mortars and cannons set up. The French come out on July 12th to try and do a little raid, and it's kind of helps because the British were pretty incompetent at building trenches. All the wood that they have set up for these are burned, and so they had to start all over again digging new trenches. Finally, on July 12th, Caleb, two British batteries are opened up, and they're only like 200 meters from the fort, and they begin bombarding the entire fort and castle all at once, just nonstop all night. One strange thing happens while this is going on, Caleb. You know what cannonballs are? Yeah, they're uh, balls that go inside cannons, right? Very good. Have you ever seen one go down a chimney? Uh, I can't say I have. Well... I'm going to tell you one crazy thing that happens. The British are firing cannonballs, and I don't know if this is like from Star Wars where they shoot a cannon and it does a right turn and goes straight down to the Death Star to blow it up, which seems to defy physics. Well, one of the cannonballs did just that. It shoots over and then goes straight down a chimney, but not just any chimney, the chimney into Peugeot's sleeping quarters, and it rolls across the floor and sits right by his bed red hot, but doesn't explode because it was just a cannonball, not a mortar. And he's just like, uh. <laughs> Take that home. There's a story to tell for the rest of your life. The shelling just continues on and on and on. The French allied Seneca come to the commander of Fort Niagara, and they say to him, we are really afraid of these cannons and mortars being fired in here, and we would like to go to the other side of the river to help support you, but not be inside the fort. Pouchot is thinking to himself, they're trying to abandon me. They see what's going on. They're trying to get out of here. But he's thinking to himself, well, I don't want them here anyway, and they're eating all my food, so good riddance. Get out of here. And the Seneca head out. He was trying to convince the one group of Native Americans to join him, but in the end, they did the convincing the other way. So what these Seneca do to add insult to injury is, you remember Little Niagara, the small wooden fort about two kilometers away? Well, it was burned, but they kind of hid some of the cattle and stuff away from there. These Seneca come out and grab the herds of cattle, and they escort them back down to the British camp and give it to them as a gift, saying, No hard feeling, chaps! We're all good now, right? And the British say, yeah, we're all good. Thank you very much. A few days later, on July 20th, it looks like that things are going pretty well for the British. However, in the morning, one of the British colonels, a man named John Johnstone, not to be confused with William Johnson, was shot by a French musket ball. So it's a, that's a pretty big loss to lose a colonel. But then later in the evening, British General Prideaux was giving orders as the cannons were firing, and he's standing next to one of these huge howitzers. And a shell comes flying out of it to fire towards the fort, but it explodes as soon as it gets out of the mouth of the cannon, and the shell fragments hit Prideaux in the brain, killing him instantly. So now you've lost your colonel and your general. So who's in charge now? Well, who's left? William Johnson? William Johnson. Now, to his credit, he doesn't skip a beat. You, you would think that, all right, I'm the third highest ranking officer here, and both of them have been killed in the same day. But he takes over and starts ordering people around on what to do. Those siege works are already set up. A message is sent to Oswego to explain the situation that's going on. And we mentioned that Lieutenant Colonel Hallamond is in charge there. And in the letter, they ask him to send reinforcements to help. 
Well, he's thinking to himself, well, wait a minute. Well, that means that I'm in charge, so I should get there and handle this siege. The following day, Johnson sends another letter saying, you know what, I've got things under control. Your presence isn't needed. But Hallamond decides to come anyway. And once Lieutenant Colonel Hallamond arrives, he expects to assume command of this operation because he's a commissioned British officer. And what's William Johnson? Well, he's just in charge of the Indians. Surely you can't expect that this lowly frontiersman should be in charge of this whole expedition. And Hallamond demands that he be given control of the army. And what do you think William Johnson says? Go pound salt. I'm in charge here. If you want to fight, we'll fight about it. Or you can just go home and leave me in charge and uh, leave with some respect. And judging by the fact that Johnson was Irish, I bet there were a few more choice words in there than that. But exactly right. Hallamond is told off and he turns around and heads back to Oswego where he stays for the rest of the winter. And Johnson continues working on besieging the fort. After two weeks of constant bombardment, uh, the British are actually starting to run low on supplies. In fact, Johnson starts offering cash rewards for people that will go out into no man's land and gather cannonballs that the French have fired to bring back to shoot back at them. The French are in a in a tight spot. The forward rampart is breached. Over a hundred people in the garrison are killed, are disabled. The rest of the people are absolutely exhausted because you can't sleep while being bombarded the whole time. Prouchot is watching from the castle, I'm sure, looking on the horizon, looking for these promised reinforcements. At the same time, he's realizing that his muskets are giving out. They fired so many rounds that their guns are breaking. They said that only one in 10 were serviceable and they had seven gunsmiths working around the clock to try and keep repairing them. Finally, on July 23rd, Prouchot and William Johnson receive intelligence that a Franco-Indian relief army is on its way and it's approaching Niagara, coming up from the south of the Ohio country. So William Johnson orders his troops to form a rear guard upon the road where he's going to expect the French. And this isn't a small group of reinforcements. This is well over 2,000 people. We're looking at about 1,100 French and an additional 1,200 Indians. So if you combine these forces with the forces he already has and then give them the defensive advantage, it's actually looking like a much more even fight if they can just merge these armies together. William Johnson, though, being a good commander, is going to do everything he can to make sure that these forces do not get to come together. So what he does is he divides his forces into three separate bodies. One, he leaves back along the shoreline to guard the boats, because the last thing you want is while you're being distracted by this is the people to come out of the castle and destroy all your boats, and then you're stuck there. And I'm sure he learned this on some of his battles in the Adirondacks region, because we see one side or the other almost Every battle is trying to do a secret night attack to burn your bateau or your boats. He leaves another group of forces at the trenches because, again, you never know when people are going to come out of the castle and attack your trenches and destroy them all. And the last body consisted of light infantry, and they're going to head up to the south, fell down some trees at a place that's known as La Belle Famille. They're going to head up to the south? It kind of sounds weird that way, but yes, because they're going up in elevation. They're heading up to the <laughs> south. But yes, they are. you got to remember that to the south is Niagara Falls, and that's up. He places his Iroquois warriors on the flanks. While this is happening, though, the Iroquois open up a parley with the French allied Indians. But as talking gets them nowhere, both sides raise a war whoop and prepare for battle. Now, William Johnson does something pretty intelligent here. He basically lets his thousand Iroquois uh, be the ones in charge with dealing with these reinforcements. This is going to be uh, fought a lot of it in the dark, in the deep woods. 
Uh, so he says, okay, you guys handle the, handle these guys here in the column that are sneaking up. It's roughly 2,000 men that are marching to the French defense. And these uh, French reinforcements, they're walking down the, the west bank of the Niagara River. And they're trying to use this portage road because instead of just walking through the woods like a lot of people wanted to do, the guy in charge, a guy named Macy said, no, stick to the portage road. So they're all there uh, trying to stick to it, marching this whole army on this teeny little stone road right on the cliff. And that's when they get attacked by the Iroquois. They are above them, shooting down from the trees as they're all stuck between a cliff and a river. There's actually only about 600 of the Iroquois attacking these 2,000 people, and they just lay into them. And they massacre huge numbers. And the French are forced to retreat in a full disarray and panic, uh, losing hundreds and hundreds of people, hundreds more taken prisoner. And meanwhile, back in Fort Niagara, they're kind of just hearing guns in the distance, not knowing what's going on hoping that people are going to come. And things do not turn out well for even the, the French that retreat because uh, the Iroquois hunt them down. And that's not to say that they were all destroyed, but a large portion of them were, and they fled back to the Ohio country to the French forts that were still there. The commander of the fort, Prichot, remains in suspense till about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. During that time, a friendly Onondaga person passes through the British lines unnoticed and tells him that the French and their Indian allies have been routed and cut to pieces. Pouchot thinks it's a trick, though. He thinks that this Onondaga guy is with the British, and he's just telling him that to get him to surrender or give up hope. It's not true. You know, they're really just camped outside, and they, they stalled, and they'll be here any day now. But after 4 o'clock, a trumpet sounds from the trenches. One of the British majors, a man named Harvey, approaches the fort again with a summons to surrender and he brings a paper containing the names of the captive French officers that they've just gotten in this battle. And Pouchot looks at this and identifies names of people he knows and knows that there's no way that the British could have gotten this without it. Oh boy, this is not good. Also, by this point, the French commander has lost roughly about half of his forces due to deaths and injuries. So he's down to somewhere around 350 men at this point. Pouchot has no choice but to surrender, and he finally does on July 25th. By the terms of the capitulation, the garrison, with these some men, will be sent as prisoners to New York. But they were granted the honors of war in acknowledgement for their courageous conduct. But not quite as much honors of war where we let you leave. Yeah, he requested honors of war and they granted it to him. And then he was very surprised when he found out he had to march his army in blazing glory to prison. He himself was actually uh, imprisoned as well. He did request that, all right, we're going as prisoners, but he wanted special stipulation to make sure that they were protected from the Indians, especially the Iroquois. I think that he was probably thinking of along the lines of something that happened at Fort William Henry sometime back. Johnson is a very well-respected man. And when Johnson asks the Haudenosaunee to not touch the French, they are absolute gentlemen and totally keep their word. They pillage the fort, but no blood is spilled whatsoever. And it makes you wonder why at Fort William Henry, so many of the Indians decided to attack and, and take goods from the retreating English. But this one, it was just perfectly in order and no bloodshed at all. It's important to note, though, that a lot of the Indians that were coming to Fort William Henry were coming from even further west than the Ohio Territory. All these these other Iroquoian prop nations, basically. And some of them were Algonquin nations, like, like the Potawatomi were coming from Michigan or Wisconsin. 
and they came all that way and got nothing. Meanwhile, if you put this in the Iroquois perspective, this battle is taking place right in their territory, really. So they don't have as much vested. Also, they were able to actually get rewarded for it by pillaging Fort Niagara. With this defeat and Fort Niagara now in British control, this portage is now sealing the deal to close off all the other Great Lakes. And you may think, well, why is this so important? Well, Fort Niagara sits on the Niagara River, and there's no way that you can sail up the Niagara River because you've got 167-foot waterfalls preventing anybody from getting there. And so you have to get off at Fort Niagara, take this Indian Trail Portage Road up past the point of no return in the Niagara River, and then you can get to the other four Great Lakes and the Ohio country. So all these other little French forts are now 100% cut off from supplies for the rest of the war. Things are going downhill very quickly for the French right now. So all told, Caleb, what is the human loss of life here? The British suffered 239 killed and wounded. The French... 109 killed and wounded, and 377 captured. Note that that does not include the relief deaths and captures, which they really don't quite know how many were killed, captured, or wounded in that. They speculate somewhere around 500. As for casualties among the Six Nations, we don't have any solid figures, but it's probably pretty minuscule. Which is probably another reason why the Iroquois were so willing to let the French retreat in peace to imprisonment because they didn't have their friends and family killed in huge numbers. We've got one more episode to go, and we're going to conclude the French and Indian War, finally. In New France, they're down to their last two uh, poker chips, but they're their biggest poker chips. We're talking Montreal and Quebec. Or Quebec, if you live there. So we've got to deal with that next time, and if you live up in Canada, this is going to be the famous Battle of the Plains of Abraham and other different things when we see that New France is finally going to fall. But it's not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination for the British. But the British do have somebody coming along for the ride. Guess who it is? Who is it? The Six Nations. We're going to see a lot of our old friends that have been with us throughout the, this whole series sadly, uh, sadly die. I'm not going to tell you who, but we're going to lose some friends in the next episode. We're going to lose some enemies. But we're going to have a lot of fun talking about it. So I hope you guys join us next episode in the fall of Canada. For those of you that have left us iTunes reviews, thank you very much. We'd like to see the Wild Sweet Potato Clan continue to grow, so if you'd like to join, please go on iTunes and leave us a positive review. Don't forget to check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook. We post stuff on our Facebook page and our website to supplement each episode pictures, maps, bios. We love hearing from you guys. If you know something or hear something that we don't know, let us know. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to ask, and Andrew and I will quickly Wikipedia it and see if we can get you an answer. If you guys wonder if that's all we do is just Wikipedia things, uh, I can assure you that that is not the case, because if you go to the Wikipedia page for the Battle of Fort Niagara, it's like four paragraphs long. Yeah, recently there was somebody, I don't know if they were starting a new podcast or just asking about a Native American podcast, but people were saying uh, there's not enough information to do a podcast on it. But there really is. You just have to do a little digging. You might not actually be able to get the right format for it. You might have to go on like Google Books and pull up these old diaries and things like that and actually read it, read the scanned pages. So it is a big pain to do the research, but there is information out there as long as you're willing to dig for it. So we thank you so much all for your due diligence and we will see you next time. Bye everybody.